his first response was, fuck you, you're not done. It's only been two hours. And I was like, oh shit, okay, well, come and take a look, tell me what I did wrong. And he comes and looks at it for a minute and goes, oh, okay, well, let's fire it up. Hits the start button, fires right up. Uh, no exhaust manifold on it, so you could see all cylinders were firing happy and stuff, revved right up, no problem. He goes, holy fuck, you are done. Okay, how about you fix all the lights on my tractor trailer, this, that, the other thing. <laughs> Had me doing a few miscellaneous things that day. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Two Track Mind Podcast. We've got a great episode here for you today. Chuck Carvalho, the CEO of Lucky Dog Racing Canada, is joining us to talk about his motorsports background and what led up to the creation of the Lucky Dog Racing Canada Endurance Series. So if you're at all interested or curious about wheel wheel racing or endurance racing and want to figure out how to get involved, put a team together, put a car together, then this episode is for you. And with that, let's get into the episode. How is uh how's your week? Very busy. I'm uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm a little tired right now. I had a very late light, late night last night, so hopefully I can not stumble over my words too much today. Ah, uh, you'll be fine. Are you partying too hard? <laughs> no, I'm stuck in the studio. Really? Yeah. Does you know it's like no regular hours, eh? Yeah, basically right now the bands that we're working with, they like to start at 2 p.m. and work into the night. Of course. So, yeah. Oh, wow. right? Yeah. I always, I always come across that like um, on Facebook, you know, there's like those random clickbait articles and it's like this um, image clip of Akon working with Eminem and he's like, oh, Eminem treats it like a nine to five. Like he shows up at like nine, leaves at five. First time I was recording a song with him, I showed up at, you know, four forty or something like that. And he's like, I'm I'm going home. We'll see you tomorrow. Come in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You you definitely know the folks that are all business and the folks that are a little bit we'll call it less professional. <laughs> you're you're too kind. You're too kind. <laughs> I I would use the term diva, but you know. Yeah, that's a good term too. We can roll with that. Cool. Well, uh I'm very excited to have you here, Chuck, uh, for this episode of the Two Track Mind podcast. Before jumping in, uh, and I, I have to say this now because I don't want to miss it, because uh, oftentimes we've been, the past two episodes we've been running a little bit long, but I'd be remiss if I were to not say that you've had a tremendous impact on the grassroots motorsports scene in Ontario. Um, I, I don't think people understand like how fortunate and lucky we are that we have you know wheel-to-wheel, accessible wheel-to-wheel racing in our backyard every single summer at great tracks with great organizers, you know, you just show up and drive. Right. And I think that's, that's fantastic. Um, and I, you know, really want to use this time today to kind of unpack what motivates you to do this, you know, what you've gotten out of it, uh, and where this is all headed. So super pumped for this conversation. Cool. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate that. That's exactly the yeah. kind of uh, thing I've been shooting for. No, that's awesome. And, and so obviously Patrick and, and I know you, quite well over the past couple of years. Uh, you know, I've, I've been doing endurance with Lucky Dog Canada since it started, and then a year before that uh, with with uh, Chump Car. And then Patrick, I think, has been doing Lucky Dog since the beginning as well, right? Um, so for the listeners who may not know who you are, can you introduce yourself? Who are you and what do you do? Uh, my name is Chuck Carvalho. Job title is uh, various, but uh, the folks that are probably watching this video probably already know me as uh, 
organizer and race director of LDRC, Lucky Dog Racing Canada. And, you know, that's, that's something that not everyone just casually jumps in to doing. So I'd love to talk about a little bit around what led up to you taking this on, taking on this, this role in, in uh, directorship. Was there a motorsports past in, in your upbringing, your introduction to cars and then interest in it? Or how did this all come about? Uh, I actually didn't start getting into racing until my, well, I, th- I want to say my mid-20s. Um, you know, I came from not a lot of money, so my family couldn't afford to do any of that stuff. And I'm from the era where we didn't have affordable racing simulators. Um, so, Like the one Patrick's sitting in right now? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so the best I could do was, you know, uh, what was it called? Need for Speed Porsche Unleashed as a kid and, uh, you know, Forza and stuff like that. Um, but, um, essentially I could actually say that pretty much all of my careers have started because of my electronics background, actually, weirdly enough. Um, you know, in my twenties, into my music career, I got really interested in the electronics and I learned that so I could be able to fix all of the gear that I use in a studio like this. Uh, long story short, one day I decided I really need to get into this racing thing and I bought myself, um, the course, how to learn to drive a F2000 car. Um, And they weren't just standard F2000 cars. The guy that owned them put SRT4 motors in them from the neon SRT4. So it was like 200 horsepower instead of 130 with a car that weighed a few hundred pounds. Um, So it was really interesting. And we were doing it in a massive parking lot that was piloned off. So if you, you know, went spinny spinny, it wasn't the end of the world. but it was a really unique situation. It was like F2000s on an auto slalom course kind of thing. So you never got fast enough to use the arrow, but the car was so fast that you felt like you were just fighting a motorcycle with spinning wheels all the way around the track. Um, any case, while I was there doing that course, um, I actually won the competition at the end of the day. They do like a little competition after you learn all of the uh, how to drive the car, and then they time you at the end. Um, and while I was there they were complaining about how the day before one of the cars actually caught on fire and, you know, they put the car out and all mechanically perfectly fine, but all the wiring was fried and they're talking about how much they hate doing wiring. So I piped mm-hmm. up and said, Oh, sounds like a interesting challenge. Uh, you know, if you want to come by your shop and try and wire your car for you. I said, okay. So I show up and it was kind of funny cause they basically just got, okay, here's the car. And here's a bunch of wiring harnesses that are not for the car. So best of luck splicing it together. And then they just walk away. Uh, and uh, so I basically just sat there and did a little bit of forensics, documented as I took it apart. And two hours later, I go up to the guy that owns the cars and say, uh, I'm done, but I don't want to clean it up until we test it out. <laughs> His first response was, fuck you. You're not done. It's only been two hours. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay, well, come and take a look. Tell me what I did wrong. And he comes and looks at it for a minute and goes, Oh, okay, well, let's fire it up. Hits the start button, fires right up. Uh, no exhaust manifold on it, so you could see all cylinders were firing happy and stuff. Revved right up, no problem. He goes, holy fuck, you are done. Okay, how about you fix all the lights on my tractor trailer, this, that, the other thing. <laughs> Had me doing a few miscellaneous things that day. And by the end of it, he was like, oh, I like you. You know, Why don't you come back to the next course? I'll just let you in there for free. You can just do it again. So I just went back and did it again. And at the end of the day, uh, you guys might actually know him. The guy that was operating and running that course is Hans from the FOG racing team, the uh, Burgundy E46. 
Okay. So he was the guy running that course and he approached me at the end of the second day and he's like, oh, you're, you know, you're a handy guy and you're pretty good in these cars. Why don't you just stick around and be one of my instructors and stuff? So long story short, I was one of his instructors for a while and that course slowly snowballed into um, a stunt driving course. Uh, long story short, it was too, too difficult to teach newbies to drive an F2000, but teaching people to spin in a BMW 3 Series is way easier. Um, <laughs> But while I was doing the F2000 course, uh, I was approached by somebody else. Um, and he said, Trump Car Canada wants to come to Canada and hire a staff and put on races here. Um, you know, you seem like a smart guy with tech stuff. Do you want to be the timing and scoring guy? And I went, okay, there's another challenge that I'm interested in. So let's do it. So I was timing and scoring and race control for Trump Car Canada for, I think, six years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after about six years of that, of you know, practically living in the tower, uh, but working for the folks that owned the series at the time, they decided they wanted to retire. So they, because I was practically family with them, they gave me first dibs to take it over, which I did. But after years of working for Chump Car, anybody that's familiar with the rule book, probably knows how flawed it is. And uh, I can basically just say that after years of being at those events, I was tired of watching the shitty attitudes and, you know, the guys that, the guys that were cheating and the other guys that were trying to bust mm-hmm. all the guys that were cheating. So when it came pro yeah. and there's people walking around the paddock with magnets looking for aluminum parts, this, that, the other thing. And it was just not a wow. good place to be. So the moment I took, I, I remember that. Yeah, I do it remember was just that. Not great. Yeah. I, and as a staff, we weren't allowed to do anything about it. It was like the competitors right. had to be the protesters. So I remember right. standing around the pit when it was protest time, just waiting for the protest to end, and just watching all of the shit show of one guy trying to bust another guy. And it was just such a flawed system, in my opinion. That as soon yeah. as I had the chance, I just said no more. I don't want this five hundred point system. Yeah, and, I I remember our first season doing chump car and thinking about how much cheaper it would have been for us to build our our Honda fit if we didn't have to abide by the point system because mm-hmm. what you end up doing is finding these parts uh, that are you know low in quantity and very hard to get to make sure like for example the suspension we couldn't run adjustable suspension to keep it within the class so we search high and low for some parts from Japan that were these like, you know, sports dampers that were non-adjustable that were pretty much just as expensive as buying a set of coilovers, mm-hmm. which would have come with camber adjustment and everything. And, you know, it's 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 really funny. And then, you know, we often hear these stories where some of the the teams with perhaps deeper wallets were able to kind of, yes, they're non-adjustable, but they've kind of swept through the ranges of custom dampers to find the one that works best for them. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when you compare the two ends of the spectrum, the the points-based rule book does make it uh, a little bit trickier to get started, I would say. Was that yeah, series supposed to be... gray area. Uh, sorry, was, was that series supposed to be uh, bracket racing, similar to what yours is? Or um, so you build a car to a class and then you have to play within that class? Yeah, you play within that class. Basically, their classes essentially started with your engine displacement. So uh, 1 to 1.9 liter was class A, and 2 liter up to 2.4 was class B, and so on and so on. Okay, yeah. Um, wow. So yeah, you were fighting with 
similar cars, but it was just so flawed. And then some guys were finding the gray areas and showing up with Nissan 240s that had Lexus V8s in them, and they still somehow met the rules. And yeah. It, it, it was just not my cup of tea. So this is exactly why I switched to the build the car you want, and we'll just see how it shakes out on the track. I love that, because I tell so many people, they're like, oh, like what you know, how do I put this car together, like for the rule book? I'm like, okay, there are some things that are pretty specific. If you want to put a fuel cell, you can't just make your own like DIY thing. It has to be something safe and approved and whatnot. But otherwise, like there's a lot of things that are just left to your discretion. If you want to get suspension, like expensive things, you you can, or you can run it cheap like so many other teams do. And um, I think that's one of the the beauties of like the, the fact that LD exists for us is like, and we're kind of spoiled i think it's nice <laughs> yeah, yeah you can you can beef up some parts but now you're tinkering with your uh, reliability so what's the mm-hmm. what's the better end game you know is slow and steady yeah. wins the race or you're a little bit faster but for who knows how long absolutely yeah. so so i know you yourself have done a decent amount of racing as well right and i know you have your own cars that you're you're graciously letting people rent now so between getting involved in Chump Car and then now operating Lucky Dog, you must have had some seasons where you yourself were also driving in a lot of these events or maybe competing in the U.S. and whatnot. So what, what was that experience like? Oh, yeah, I love racing. I get uh, extremely jealous when I'm in the tower. Every time a car drives by the tower, I'm going, oh, I want to be out there doing that job. I don't want to be in the tower anymore. Um but yeah, I've, uh, I've raced, you know, Watkins Glen in my old EG Civic. And actually with Patrick, not too long ago, we went to VIR in a GR86. Yep. And that was a blast. Uh, yeah, I've done a bunch. I, I was mostly a front wheel drive guy for the first while, basically just driving Honda Civics and stuff. Uh, but more recently, I picked up an NA Miata, which I'm currently fascinated by. I think it's the funnest thing I've ever driven on four wheels. It's uh, And it's just a bone stock Miata. It's amazing. Um, uh, I've had a nightmare stint in a, uh, five liter Mustang at Calabogie because, uh, nightmare. What does that well, mean? I showed up to the track thinking I was going to work all weekend for chump car. And my wife came with me when we got there. She said, Oh, by the way, you're not working. You're actually driving this five liter Mustang. And, uh, they just started pissing rain as she said that. And I was going, Oh, this is going to be interesting. So that long story short is more like a drifting competition than <laughs> racing a Mustang. And I actually lost it going into turn five when I didn't downshift properly and the car just rotated counterclockwise. And I just like skinned the wall basically on the passenger side, stopped and went, well, that was interesting. And then continued putt-putting away. And I even remember pulling into the uh, pits that stint because I just like the window was completely fogged up. And I just pulled in. I went, this is just so unsafe. I'm just going to get out. I'm just going to call it. And he's like, oh, there's only a few minutes left in the race. Hands me a squeegee and tells me to squeegee on the front straights. Okay, <laughs> yep. I'll try that. There you go. <laughs> so, on the front straights and back straights, squeegeeing a five-liter Mustang while you muscle it in the rain is very entertaining. <laughs> and I got out of the car and said, I never want to do that again. We we have had similar situations in the RSX where it was uh, just the, the front windshield was so fogged up. It's like, you know, we don't have the uh the cowl for the hvac there anymore no fans or anything and at one point uh a couple of us have the same helmet bag which has this like basically like a computer fan in there to 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 um to to dry your helmet when it's stored and so we all ripped them out of our 
our helmet bags and try to like install them onto like a USB battery <laughs> brick and see if it had enough airflow. Obviously it didn't. No. Um, it was ridiculous. But then we, we ended up buying like um like the same kind type of like heater elements that you would have on the rear window for yeah. the front. Yeah. Uh Bimmer World makes a kit like that. We didn't install it yet. Um, but like everyone kind of looks at it, it's like, oh man, doesn't that like kind of distract your vision and stuff like that? I was like, yeah, but you'd rather be able to see like 95% versus zero. So. Yeah, that's the worst of the evils. But uh, it, uh, the scrap yeah. denial car actually has a bunch of server fans on the dashboard. So when they need to defog, he flips a switch and it sounds like a server uh, rack. <laughs> just booting up. <laughs> so it does work. You just need a ton of them. Yeah. Yeah. High powered fans. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. So, I mean, let's talk a little bit about Lucky Dog then. Um, this, you know, series that Patrick and I both, you know, love so much and we will talk to anybody who wants to listen, right? We'll talk their ear off about uh, how, how much of a great time it is. Um, but for people who are first being introduced to it, what does, where does the name come from? You know, it's such a whimsical, fun name. Does it have a, a meaning? Because, um, so when I first took over and was doing that whole rule book swap that I mentioned, I initially was going to call it CER, Canadian Endurance Racing. Just simple. Um, and I, I remember my first Facebook post coming out going, hey, guys, my name's Chuck. I'm taking over and switching things over, and here's what I'm planning. And I put out like rough draft of my rule book just so people had an idea. And it was basically the Lucky Dog rule book, but uh, I was still finalizing it, so it didn't have pretty graphics and stuff like that yet. Um, and sure enough, I had a bunch of people just kind of tear a strip off me online. I can't believe you're changing it to bracket racing. And, uh, this rule book looks unprofessional, yada, yada. And, um, Kathy from lucky dog racing league in the USA, she's actually one of the people that trained me for chump car. Cause when we took the chump car job, we got flown to the USA to be trained and Kathy worked for chump car at that time. Funny enough. Most of the organizer race directors of competing series like WRL, L Lucky Dog Racing League, uh, myself, we all started in Chump Car. <laughs> we all officially at some point or another said screw Chump Car and started our own series. But everybody came from Chump Car. Um, and so, yeah, a few years later, fast forward to me doing this thing. And I was just having a conversation with Kathy because uh, we've always stayed in contact. And she even mentioned, she goes, oh, yeah, I see the people on Facebook are kind of roasting you a little bit. And I was like, yeah, whatever. What are you gonna do? And, she was, and, uh, and I cracked a joke saying, if I change a few more words in my rule book, I might as well just call it the Lucky Dog rule book. And because uh, it was that close together, they were like the same rules, basically, just different wordings. And she's like, well, why don't you? You know, we're buddies anyways. And we'll just, you know, share a little bit of the marketing and stuff like that. Um, so we're separate companies, but we're a bit of a team that way where we have a, you know, we jump on the horn a few times a year and catch up. And especially when it's time to plan for the next year and stuff like that, we have a few convos to make sure we're all on the same page. But we're basically yeah. separate companies just supporting each other. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's not exactly my favorite name or favorite logo, but it suits the purpose and it keeps the, yeah. the camaraderie level high and the competition low. Yeah. But there, there is a... It is a technical term, right? The lucky dog in in racing. Is it? I think so. You, yeah. you, you know, the listeners can correct me on this, but I, I, and maybe Patrick knows this too, but I believe it refers 
to lapped cars that get to unlap themselves oh. uh, when the safety car is out. Right. I think you might actually. Patrick, am, am I right on this? I am hitting the Google. Um, apparently, so it's like a free pass. Um, a beneficiary rule commonly referred to as a lucky dog or a free pass. Uh, allowing the closest lap driver in front of the field to gain a lap back when a caution is called. Okay, so you Only just get closest. lucky enough to like earn your lap back um, when you're at the back, I guess. Yeah. Um, cool. Today yeah. I learned. So what was supposed to happen during the, what, 2021 Formula One championship, but didn't happen for <laughs> the entire field. <laughs> uh, yeah, because... It did the when it before I kind of looked that up. I always was like, oh, it's like you know when we're middle age and we get to run away from our responsibilities for the weekend. We're lucky dogs racing, <laughs> something like that. Uh, but uh, no, like you know, it's it's really fascinating to kind of hear how there's kind of this diaspora of of in, grassroots endurance racing folks who kind of all came from from uh, uh, a similar place. Um, you know, as we kind of think about now, Lucky Dog Canada has been running for a couple of years. What would you say was your goal at the onset of this this venture and, and how have things kind of shaped out? I just wanted to create the racing series that I wanted to race in myself, basically. Yeah. It's been the Ironic that you don't get to do that, but yes. I know. And, oh, and funny enough, I remember when they offered me the chance to take over the series, I actually said, well, if I'm running the show, that means I can hire people, like I can delegate and hire people, and then I can just go racing more myself. Fast yeah. forward six years, and it was only <laughs> a few months ago that I figured out how to finally get myself into the car. Um, but it's been it's been a slow build because I discovered that I'm way too much of a control freak, and it's mm. so hard to find good help these days that it's taken me you know, a good five or six years to find the staff that I trust that I can walk away from and not have to hover at the radio, uh, you know, babysitting all the time. Now I have some good staff that I can rely on. So there have been a couple of occasions where in the morning I say, this is your show today. I have nothing to do with this race. You know, your race control, I'll be in my Miata. And, yeah. Um, nice. And that's the goal. I, in 2024, I'm kind of hoping I can do that at every race. I'm not sure if I can, but that's the goal. I don't want to be in the tower anymore. I want to be chasing you guys. <laughs> hey, man, build the GT1 car. Let's play. <laughs> yeah, I'm planning some aero for my Miata. I want to see how much faster I can. Hell yeah! So we'll see. That's that's amazing. So there there'll be some like special Chuck rules, right? You know, when you see Chuck in the rear view, you got to move to the side. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Paul. <laughs> Chuck passed you. Free beers that's at funny. the end of the race. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. You do that anyway, uh, man. We're so of... grateful. <laughs> That's true. That is true. That is true. It's always a good time after the race. Yeah, I love it. It's such a good atmosphere. It's it's why I do it. Like, the race is fun. I have a blast. But for me, when I'm not getting in the car, it's about after 5 p.m. when we're all just hanging out in the paddocks and having yeah. some beers, shooting the shit. We, we had some friends join us for the final race at Calabogie who are from the time attack crowd, you know, they do like CSCS and they came to help uh, crew for us. And I think their, their general impression after coming was like, why is everyone so chill? Why is everyone so nice? You know, cause they're kind of used to like the, 
you know, competing teams coming by, taking a look underneath the car, you know, the, the, the protest dance, right? Of like yeah. trying to see what's going on yeah. uh, and not much like interaction between the pits. And, and I think they were quite uh, smitten by the, the community uh, awesome. that they saw. Yeah. yeah. So speaking yeah. of, speaking of, um, you know, being in, in the tower all the time, I'm, I'm actually kind of curious of the, the whole production process of putting on uh, a race day or a race weekend. Is there kind of like, a checklist script that you kind of run through and it's almost always like meticulously in my ABCDE. head. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's in my head and I'm basically hovering on the radio, bossing people around all day long. Um, yeah. But yeah, there, there, there's a little bit of a checklist, you know, right. Uh, essentially once the season ends in October, I hit the ground running and for the next couple of months, I'm planning like hell for my next season. Um, yep. And then usually when I, release my schedule and say registration's open that's essentially when i'm done my planning and pull the trigger and it gives me a couple months to sit back and do that until racing season. yeah yeah but yeah there's definitely a lot of uh things that need to be in place you know you need ems you need tow you need staff in all the various positions um and it's it's mentally taxing that's for sure so that's, yeah. that's why i'm so happy that i'm finding the right staff these days that are um fitting into their positions nicely and I don't have to talk to them as much so I can start doing my own thing and delegating. Uh, it, it, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy with the way all of that is slowly developing. Yeah. I, I wish I could have got there in year one or two, but yeah. uh, I'll take what I can get whenever I can get it. Right? Yeah. And when you think about putting together the season, you know, us, Patrick and I, as, as competitors, we kind of just see things fall into place perfectly. It's like, Oh, you know, it's, it's, early winter we should be seeing the schedule soon and it's like oh the new rule book comes out great let's read up on it what do we need to change but of course like there's there's a lot of stuff happening in the background is there like one or two things that tend to be the most like dynamic in terms of locking down that gives you <laughs> that extra little bit of stress and then figuring out or is everything kind of the rule you know, book maybe because every year yeah. i like to revise the rule book to try and make it you know even more and more the perfect atmosphere um yeah and the perfect track, perfect racing environment. Um, and yeah, I find that because like, yeah, I'm a one man show, but all year long, I'm talking to all the racers. I'm figuring out what was good, what was bad, what needs to potentially change. Um, and then uh, when the off season starts, I do have a few, what I call my trusted guys, uh, competitors that all send them my drafts, the rule books and say, here, mm. this, tell me what you want to argue with me about kind of thing. And uh, so there's a lot of back and forth there to make sure I get things right. Um, and that's probably the most stressful part for me. And actually track booking is also very stressful because um, mm. it's a bit of a fighting process, you know, like in the right. beginning, there are only so many weekends. There's only so many weekends. And, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's, it, it was really difficult to get certain tracks in the beginning. Um, you, yes. you, have to, you have to prove yourself that you were a legit business person. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And uh, you know, on the on this topic of of some tracks being harder to book, like I have heard like some stuff that I've read on online uh, about like grassroots endurance racing or just grassroots racing in general at some of the premier tracks. That sometimes there's a little bit of like a hesitation from some tracks of of thinking about their own branding of like, oh, do we want to really participate in, in this type of racing where 
you know, the, we try our best to make our cars look pretty, but you know, sometimes yeah. there's a, there's a bumper hanging off. There's, there's, you know, there's a couple of dents in the door. Has that ever really come up with the, with the tracks that we race at? Absolutely. Yeah. In, in the beginning, um, especially in the chump car days and even leading towards the end of the chump car days and in the beginning of LDRC, um, we were referred to as crap cam racing by the mm. tracks basically. And I, I could understand where, you know, a, a track, no track is going to want a bunch of guys to show up that don't really care about their cars. And they're going to show up and play bumper cars on their track and then go home, leaving parts and whatever behind. That was kind of the, and I think that was basically, you know, lemons and the really early days of chump car that gave that impression. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's something that I certainly had to fight with here where, and that's why I changed the rule book and said, make your cars look nice. We want it to be loaded onto the trailer, the exact same condition that you loaded it off. Uh, because then when we go to the tracks and they see that we're no longer crap can racing, we're trying to cherish, make these cars nice. And, uh, and again, that took a year or two for the tracks to notice, but we're no longer referred to as crap can racing. They look at us as a pro series now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Send them so a picture of our car, gone. man. Yeah. Once the cars like knew me started showing up and, you know, fours <laughs> and RSXs. All of a sudden, the tracks are. Uh, I don't know if you, I would include the RSX in that group, but you know, you're flattering us. <laughs> All your panels match, we're man. From, we're far from the days of crap can racing, though. I can promise you that. Like it's been three yeah. years at least since we've been called crap can racing. At least four, actually. Hell yeah. Yeah. Do Do you find that the or have have the tracks expressed that you know they've kind of benefited from the series? So yeah. and here's why why I would mention that because like you look at a track like Calabogie, people from Toronto probably wouldn't make that trip out there before. Like there's a lot of people who do time attack but have never been to that track, right? Yeah. And I've only been there because of endurance racing, but now I have much more of a, a, a fascination to try and get out there. If I can get over my range anxiety of having to tow a broken car back, <laughs> um, but yeah, have you had any of those kind of conversations or felt that kind of feedback come back? Yeah, uh, Calabogi was a little bit disappointed that we didn't want to do two dates there this year. Mm. And, you know, essentially we are known for being uh, influential and building the racing community. So there's a lot of folks that are, you know, going lapping and stuff and saying, oh, I want to get into Lucky Dog. Like that's the end goal kind of thing. So, you know, Shannonville's mentioned that, that there seem to be a lot of people showing up and uh, testing their cars and practicing to get into endurance racing and stuff like that. So it is... We are getting noticed and it is being seen. Um, again, I just wish it would have happened in a couple of years and not six years. But, uh, you know, when you love what you do, it doesn't feel like work, right? So it still feels like year two or three to me as far as the excitement level goes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I just love racing at Calabogi. I just can't get over how much fun it is to, to be out there. And we've never done it without endurance racing. And I think, for me, it's like up there in terms of potential bucket list type tracks where, Absolutely. you know, so much elevation. It's beautiful in the fall, like the the foliage in, in the infield, you kind of get lost in it sometimes when there's not that many cars around you and you're on your own place in the lap. It's just kind of, uh, it's a meditative experience. It's a really yeah. under uh, underrated track, I think. Only those that have been there know how good and how beautiful it really is. Uh, yeah. Other than that it's it's a mythical track you know you don't really understand how good it is yeah but it's like that for so many tracks right like when me and patrick went to vir my first lap on that track is like oh my god i, I love this track 
It's yeah, just, man. Uh, but completely different than Calabogie for sure. Yeah. And, and I do want to talk about that a little bit. Because VIR is definitely on my personal bucket list, and I'm very jealous that the two of you guys got to go <laughs> down there, uh, no I less in an, in an 86. Yeah, in an endurance race, car. dude. <laughs> yeah. How, how did that all come together? Uh, I was actually just approached by Brian Bourne from Scalar Performance, and he basically just said, hey, do you want to come drive my GR86 with me at uh, VIR? I jumped on board and then discovered afterwards that uh, I would be racing with Patrick and Alana Carter and uh, Joel Phileas. So at first it was a little bit cheesed off that he put me in a car with all these hot shoes. It's like, oh, great. I'm going to be the slowest guy on the team now. <laughs> um, but I had such a blast. It was such a good week. Yeah. And other than the heat, I basically got out of the car on Saturday and had heat strokes. So I had to go sit in the shower oh, for an hour and a half to try and recover. Because uh, I can't remember the temperature. Wasn't it like forty degrees and humid or something? Yeah, Patrick? yeah, it was. It was, it was really bad. Uh, Rod, uh, Roger Singh's shoe sort of uh, delaminated into delaminated pieces. Yeah, he had a giant blister on his heel. It was just yeah, it was it was intensely hot. Um, but to to mention like VIR, it always gives me like really fond memories of how well. The quality is like not just of the track, but everything surrounding it. Uh, Chuck and I shared a hotel room. Yep. And like the air conditioning, as soon as you walk in, it's great. When you walk out, you're viewing the exit of what they call hog pen, which is the last corner. So you're just, you walk out of your hotel room, you're watching cars just whir by. And I, and I feel like Calabogi could definitely benefit from like more on track sort of like hotels like that. I know. You can rent out yeah. uh, the building there. Oh, I, I wish they had some more. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I rent out those suites myself, and I do also wish they had some more. And I think all of the racers also wish they had some more because mm -hmm. that's honestly the only real complaint I get about Calabogi is amazing accommodations. Track, but as far as accommodations and stuff in the area, it's a bit of a nightmare. Yeah, yeah we're booking you the Calabogi just cycle Lodge. through the same. Yeah. You cycle yeah. through like the same list of Airbnbs every year as well. And then when it gets taken up, uh, like right before you get it, you know it's another team that snagged it before you. <laughs> RV Easy is the way to go now. I don't know if you guys have tried That's that true. yet. But uh, I've heard RV of it. Easy is so good. You just rent trailers and they'll deliver it mm. for you. For mm. So they'll they'll say, okay, this trailer sleeps this many people for 100 bucks a night or whatever it is, but the delivery fee is an extra 100 bucks kind of thing. But I do that for all my yeah. stuff. I just rent trailers and get them dropped off. And it basically ends up being the same price as a hotel, but you don't have to leave the track. That's, that's, uh, yeah, no, that sounds like actually a really good plan. We should definitely look into that as well. But we, we like to get rowdy in the evenings and Calvoke yeah. as well. And I don't want to disturb, disturb the other teams in the, in the pit. <laughs> well, I think you're fine. I think we were actually slightly rowdy the last time we were there, but I also have the suites inside and stuff. So we could always, if things are getting rowdy, we could always make our way indoors. Yeah. So you guys all drove the same car. I have to ask, you know, did you 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 bested Patrick's time, right? I did not actually. Patrick <laughs> is a fast son of a b. Uh, <laughs> I tried, I did, but but I was also a little bit nervous about driving an expensive car that I was unfamiliar with. So I was yeah going as fast as I could, but at the same time taking it easy and wanting to bring the car home. Um, yeah. So I, I, you know, I'm very happy with my stint, and uh, like I did get the nice comment from Roger that I'm 
the smoothest driver he's ever seen. I don't know if that means I'm slow, but I'm smooth. Uh, but I was a couple, I think I was one or two seconds behind Patrick's pace. I can't remember. Yeah. No. He's probably put in, you know, a bunch of hours in the sim beforehand just to Absolutely. make sure he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that was an interesting oh, race, man. actually, because in the car we had such different drivers, you know, like there was me and Roger that were like the smooth guys. Um, and then Patrick was like a happy medium, like smooth, but not afraid to kick it out a tiny bit, seemingly. And then you get to, well, I guess Alana was closer to Patrick too in that way. But then you get the Joel and he just wants to be sideways, just throwing it into the turns as hard as he can. And I'm watching him do that going, okay, like, yeah, it's a faster lap right now, but is the car going to last all weekend if we got a guy like this <laughs> in the car? And uh, fortunately the car did last, but I was basically doing this the whole weekend going any second now he's going to hurt this car. And I, sh I sure hope not, but uh, it was an interesting. That's what, that's what we always tell our like new drivers that join us in our cars. Like it's going to be very different from the, from the morning to the afternoon, but also try to keep it in one piece for the person who drives later today, because they seem to need to make it around. But you know, yeah. sometimes it, it falls on deaf ears, but it's, it's still fun. You might what, one thing I remember ab about the scalar car, Patrick, you told me is that there's no ABS in that car, right? No, no, no ABS, uh, no brake assist either. So you're really pushing mm. on the pedal. Um, but yeah, I, I think Brian has had a lot of practice with setting up cars this way. Um, yeah, I, I've driven cars with no ABS before, and I was very prone to locking up. They were maybe overboosted or something, or I didn't have the resolution before. But this is only the second non-ABS car I've ever driven, and the only time I actually locked up was um, first time I drove the car, and the second uh, was mid-race when somebody closed the door on me going into mm -hmm. the back section called roller coaster, and I spun the car. Um, but otherwise, it was like really predictable for me. I, I didn't realize how fast I was going to get accustomed to the braking system. Yeah. Yeah. I think having manual brakes, combining that with, you know, no ABS is, is a good mm -hmm. combination. Like we, we, in the RSX, we have boosted brakes and we have no ABS and everyone has a different seating position, but we mm -hmm. have fixed seat bucket. So it's, it took a long time to get comfortable enough to, to even just heel toe in that car because you, you at least for me because because jisung loves to be super close to to the wheel but he's like the tallest guy on the team as well right so the rest of us like our knees are kind of and ankles are floating in the air when we're trying to like heel toe and it just feels like you don't have any uh triangulation uh to to try and um keep your body steady when you're trying to do it and so yeah the first couple of years locking up especially going into um I guess it would be turn two in Calabogie, the downhill uh, right-hander, right? Like that That was an easy, easy lock for us wow. uh, in the RSX in the early days. Yeah, I, I roasted a set of tires in a morning practice session. Holy. <laughs> Just from locking it. Well, it was because I, I didn't, uh, I was coming up against uh, another vehicle that broke a lot sooner than I thought they would. And then I was just like, oh shit. I'm going to definitely rear at this guy, and we haven't even started qualifying yet. <laughs> Luckily, he let off the brake just as I was, like, you know, a foot away. So, oh, save me from a lot of embarrassment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, to go to uh, that, to stay on that topic, actually, lately I've had the chance to compare 
a couple different Miatas, one of them being my own, which is Bonstock Miata with no power steering. Um, and the one I compared it to was Ecotech swap, Super Miata suspension, power steering. So just a completely different Miata. Yep. And um, can't decide which one I like better. I think if the Ecotech swap had no power steering, it'd be a different story because I'm a big proponent for no power steering, no power assist. I love that. Like I want to be one with the car. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, well, there's no power steering. You can just feel so much more communication through the wheel. I really love that. And that was the only thing I didn't like about the Ecotech swap version was I wanted right. more communication. But it was such a smooth feeling car at the same time that it had its own charm. That uh, This is at Shannonville that I was comparing. And at the end of the day, I seriously got out. And it was like, I can't decide which one I like better. The Ecotech is obviously faster, but my car is so fun that I would rather go slow. Like, I don't care. Yeah. I'm happy that way. Um, yeah. So that was very uh, an interesting test for me. That's Joe's car? Yeah, Joe Searson. Yeah, and she is um, a staff at LD? Yep. Yeah, that's what I like. A lot of your staff are like actually racers themselves, and they sort of like apply uh, what they know and want as racers to make our community that much better. It's, I, I find that really cool that she's got that Ecotech swap Miata. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're like the, the FUBU of racing series, four racers by racers. Uh, I like that. First time I've heard that. Four four races by races. <laughs> uh, but do you, do you find like that kind of manual setup, you know, applied to endurance racing? Wouldn't that make it much more tiring over the span of two hours? Not for me. I love it. I, I have. Oh, no, you're you're buff. You've been working out. <laughs> I, I've gotten complaints from people saying, you know, I don't, I don't want non-power for a full two hours. I'll get tired. But yeah. Only if you're driving the car slow, you know, like you don't tell the difference when you're going quick. It feels, it feels the same. They, except for you have more communication. It's not yeah. that much of a difference in my opinion. With a small car like a Miata, anyways. Maybe if we we're talking a bigger, heavier car like the Impala, um, it might be a different story. <laughs> Wider tires, bigger yeah. car. Yeah. Might feel a little bit more. Yeah. So we we talked briefly about how updating the rules is, is a bit of a, a, a large task. You know, it was a little bit back and forth, thinking about what's going to stick, getting driver feedback from the series. With the changes for 2024, what would you say was the overall spirit of the adjustments that were made this year? Um, there was actually such minimal changes this year. I feel like it was like update a couple of the dates and, uh, but the biggest change is the, uh, point system, uh, for the mm -hmm. championship, uh, that got completely revised. Uh, we were previously doing it more like a formula one style where it's just fixed points. Um, but it was actually Russ Bond that got this idea in my head. We were talking about it over some beers and he said, um, It'd be pretty interesting if we did the points based on how many laps are collected, because now uh, they're going to want to stay in the race, you know, because obviously more right. laps, more points, it'll it'll just add an extra element. So we thought about it for a while, and then I even came home and converted previous results that we already had to the new system, and it actually made the championship uh, closer and more interesting uh, for. Mm -hmm. The whole season really that it was like oh very interesting so 
I am going to try it. We've already released the rules. Uh, I'm actually really looking forward to it because I do think it's going to certainly add an extra element of uh, some of the teams that would think, ah, screw it, let's pack it and go home. Now they have a reason not to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's about all there really is behind that one. And I think it is going to make a difference. Yeah. It's funny how all the best ideas come out over beers. Yeah. At the race weekends, usually. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You just got to hang out with Chuck late in the evening if you want to get your rules snuck into the next rule book. You know, like, oh, yeah. I have this great idea. That's usually but what I, happens. I get pulled aside way too often when I'm just trying to yeah. decompress. So, so, so I, I do agree with you. I think this is going to be huge for what I call personally like melancholy Sunday afternoons when you're still out there and racing, but all your friends are packing up because they blew something up and they're like, the the fun weekend mentality switches to practical Monday morning mentality of like, yeah, you know, I should we should probably just hit the road and and, and get home, right? But I, I do think this is going to be great for for people who can cobble the car back together to just mm-hmm. really stay until the end, and we can have you know a, a more of like a high note ending, right? Which is Saturday after the race, great time, and then I always found like it's there's just that little bit of melancholy in the air on on the Sunday afternoon as we're all kind of packing up yeah. um but one one thing i do want to kind of discuss right um as a potential side effect of this rule now is that because it's one point per lap some of the tracks are going to be more important to show up to than others and i'm thinking gp being a sub 140 lap for gt1 versus like a 225 220s lap at Kalaboki, that's a big difference. It is going to be a thing, and that's partially why when we go to Shannonville, um, I, I, I swapped it up even more there. Like we added the Friday, so there's a few hours on Friday, so there's even more points potential. But then mm. on the Sunday, we're switching it to pro track instead of long track. And I'm going to load all of the classes in place at the end of Saturday because we know that pro track is going to do a little bit of weirdness with the class thing. It just does. We know this. Yep. Um, so I'm going to lock all the classes in place Saturday night and then say Sunday, think of it as bonus points. Everybody go nuts. I'm not changing the classes. Um, so now you have pro track to just collect as many bonus points on the very last race as possible. <laughs> yeah. All to play for at the very end then. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, so nobody's going to want to miss Shannonville now. And, uh, and oh, I, man, I tried to crazy. balance it out as best as I could. But yeah, obviously, Calabogie and Mulsport are drastically different tracks. And it is what it is. Yeah, People are going to want to go to Mulsport anyways. People are going to want to go to Calabogie anyways. I feel like yeah. Shannonville was the only one that I really had to get creative. Like, oh, I got to really make people want to go to Shannonville for the last race. Uh, everything yeah. else, I think, is going to sell itself. Yeah, isn't that always an interesting one that people have a tough time convincing themselves to to go to to Shani and then, and it's I think maybe it's track. I shouldn't say my favorite favorite, but I love that track. That's where I learned yeah. to race, and I'm a yeah. big believer that anybody wanting to get into racing should go either DDT or Shannonville because you know yeah. virtually no walls. It's Very just some grass. You can do a little bit of off roading, no big deal compared to hitting a wall. Yeah. Um, and it's just a great track. And it's because it's so nice and flat. You can really teach people, you know, here's the basic line. And then we're going to go to other tracks and you got to add the line with a little bit of elevation. Now you got to think in other uh, dimensions. Yeah. But it's a good start. Yeah, exactly. 
and yeah. the visibility. Everybody loves to go there and spectate. It's a, it has a charm. The spectating is great. Yeah. See the whole track pretty much. Yeah. Pat, Wait, what's, what's your, Sorry. what's your perspective on, uh, the point system as a, as a fellow racer and a, and a, and a competitor in the series? I think, uh, especially with the addition of pro track to the end of the season, um, if you think about what Shannonville sort of does to cars on the infield, where there's like a lot of braking, a lot of, there's, there's more moments for, uh, something to happen, more heat generated to run pro track mm-hmm. at the end. It's sort of like almost like a break for the car. So as long as your, your engine's okay with running high RPM for a while, not a lot of come down. Um, if you mm-hmm. can manage the cooling, you can turn lap after lap. There's only a couple of like hard braking zones on the pro layout. So it'll be really interesting. Um, I hope it's, it's, it's not a lot of organizations run pro track. And th- like I, I'm mentioning this because it, this was like the most uh, drastic change to, to me is running um, door-to-door racing at pro track. Cause even in time attack, there really aren't a lot of organizations that run it. Um, there's not a lot of days where you can get practice on the pro layout. And turn two, uh, for those of, that have never driven pro layout, is sort of mm-hmm. like a banked left-hander. Um, it could actually get pretty sketchy, and often, um, I've actually done this myself, I run off on the right side, almost yep. like using that banking as a ramp. On the high side. Yeah, yeah. So yep. it, it, it can be pretty treacherous. So it's going to be uh, challenging, although not as much like breaking. There's still... Uh, a different element into it and i i am like personally heavily inviting to uh, like pro layout and the the new point system running pro layout like what's an average uh what's the cutoff lap time there chuck for 120 for gt1 uh i need to look at that actually it's a good question uh, yeah my head, i can't remember yeah like well it's and gonna it, be fast it's, time it's, and pass, though, basically. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. it's it's, it's gonna really gonna make a big like we did try running pro layout as LDRC, uh, I can't remember what year it was, but we did do it. And <laughs> to give you an example, we had the DOT pickup truck in the Gourley car on the GT1 podium. That's how much it kind of messed wow. things up. Wow. Yeah. Um, so that's why I said I'm locking things in place Saturday because I'm not starting that argument. It's just an end of the season fun day, get some points and go kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sure. But yeah, it really messes with the classing, which is why I don't run it. It, it basically turns Shannonville into a Mosport, and we all know that Mosport. I, I do the best I can to keep the classings the way they should be, but Mosport yep. throws a wrench into the way our classings lay out because it, it works better on technical tracks versus high-speed tracks. Yep. And that switch over to the pro track again on that turn to the, the first... Stint is probably going to be a little bit dicey too with the the marbles accumulating probably where you don't want oh, them yeah. to be between the two layouts. Yeah, you basically have to cross over a dirty track right to to get to the other side. But I think as long as there's no standing water on the front straight, everybody can figure out the rest from there. That was <laughs> yeah. uh, that yeah. was quite interesting when we woke up the one day to way too much standing water on the front straight. Uh, and, yeah. A river and going down across <laughs> track. Yeah, the long way. yeah, I locked it over a puddle this year at Chani. Yeah, I went into the grass, you know, a couple couple of feet from the barriers. But I don't know, I felt like when I hit the grass, I was like, I think we're okay. <laughs> it got pretty close though. But were you guys times. there at the race years ago where it started raining so hard 
that uh, I wanted to red flag the race because the visibility was terrible. And I went down and I was talking to all the racers and they're jumping on the radar going, no, it's fine. Don't fl- don't red flag the race. So we just kept it going. And it's like this crazy torrential downpour. And everybody's yeah. out there racing, having a great time. Nobody was going off. It was fantastic. Yeah. Couldn't believe it. I don't think you're ever going to get people to to call it off unless there's thunder and lightning. Yeah. Yeah, they're just going to be like, nah, we can do this. We'll just do what we can. And Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a mature paddock, right? Like everyone kind of checks up on everyone in, in the sense of like no one's pushing beyond their, their limits and means. That's in, another in thing adverse to point weather. out too. If you think about the amount of um, uh, experience we have in the paddock, guys like Robin Virtue with 54 years of racing experience, John DeMaria, 54 years of racing experience, just these two guys alone, over 100 years of racing experience. Uh you know, the Dunskis, they've been racing for how long and they own Mantis. And and yeah, like the, the group of people that we have and then, you know, Tom Smith and Patrick Alex, like you guys are all very influential to uh, motorsports and, and sort of keep it all together. When we all get to the track, you can especially feel it there too because everybody's kind of talking with each other and keeping it all safe and legit. And yeah, everything just falls into place so naturally with the group of folks that we have currently. That, uh, you know, I think a lot of people are saying, oh, how does LDRC run so smoothly? It's because the racers are great. I'm not doing a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah, we are are too nice to each other sometimes. But (laughs) I I will say, you know, a couple of times this year, the racing got really close. It was kind of elbows out almost uh, at at a few of the races where it ended on the same lap, right? And this, this kind of... Uh, calls my attention to one of the things that that became highlighted in the rule book around blocking, right? And specifically, mm-hmm. uh, there was a line that was that was highlighted around taking the middle line is considered blocking. So I do have to ask: in the situation where you're literally door to door for the final lap, how should we behave as those two cars going door to door into a turn? Well, going door to door into the final lap in the same uh, class, same lap for the win. Racing. You're racing. Just don't touch each We're other. We're racing. Just yeah. don't touch each other. Yeah. Let's okay. go. Yeah, because because that that's where I, I I I you know if I read the rule book as it's written, it's like okay, well then I maybe I can't take a defensive line or something like that, right? Um, but uh, I I mean, yeah, yeah, obviously we never want to see blocking, but. If you got a block to win the race, did you really win the race? That's my opinion. Like I, I'm one of those guys that has way too big of a conscience that mm. I don't want to win the race if I didn't. If I did it by blocking, if I feel like if I have to block somebody and do something wrong, I'll just let yeah. that person win because I'd rather sleep at night. Yeah, but you're, you're, you're too like, nice. Well, yeah, exactly. I'm not like that. Like that. We've certainly <laughs> seen guys in all the RC that'll push the other guy out of the way because they want that third place instead of the fourth. Yeah. Place. Yeah, and I'm really not like that. Like, I'm there to have a good time. I like to compare my laps with the guys on my team and stuff like that. And if we come in first place, that's fantastic. If we come in last place, that's also fantastic. If we finish the race, I don't care, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because I'm, I'm thinking, you know, when, when we were at Shannonville, maybe it was at the second race, because the, the, the first race was the rain day, right? And our, our team, team part out 20 seconds back from Numi. And it was it was closing right into the last session. So I was just thinking, man, like if we were actually door to door, what would we be doing, right? And so, and the reason why I bring this up also is, 
yes, our two cars are in the same class, but the the way that they drive is so different, especially at Shannonville. Our braking point is like literally, I kid you not, like a good like 20, 30 yards before Numi's, right? You know, Patrick is just like standing on the brakes, enjoying his ABS and laughing all yeah. the way through the corner at us. Yeah. Whereas we're like, oh, there's a little bump coming. I better not lock the brakes. You know, I just got to lift on it. And so I'm thinking, man, like if we were ahead of them, the only way we would be able to win this is if we take like defensive lines into corner. Obviously not making two moves, right? Pick the line and go through it. But, you know, that's that's kind of, uh, if, if we were really pushing for it, that's kind of what it would have happened. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's I mean, a gray area. Yeah, exactly. That's a, it's not the way I would have raced, but I'm not saying that's the absolute wrong thing to do. <laughs> I wouldn't blame We you. all know that some all guys right. are doing wink, it. I try my best to catch all of you. Like, you know, Steve Manol is uh, is damn near famous for doing that. Uh, <laughs> I, I can actually name a bunch of guys that I've had numerous conversations with going, you know, here's your slap on the wrist. If I see you doing it again this weekend, your car's getting penalized. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, also that's, it, it's part, depending on how you've been brought up racing, it's kind of in your nature. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. a little bit of a difficult thing to tell yourself not to do that in the heat of the moment, in my yep. opinion. Yep. Yeah. So, so there is. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to suggest blocking to anybody, but uh, there's there's a fine. You, you want to be that. You want to be the neutral party in this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you want to be blocking. That's for sure. Okay. All right. We'll hold you to it. Yeah. We'll 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 bring out the the video evidence. <laughs> well, honestly, I like to be, you know, especially if I'm in you know, a slower class. If guys are coming up behind me, I yeah. like to buy as fast as possible because I don't want to impede anybody's race. I just want to be in my own. And if yeah. somebody comes up at a similar speed as me, yeah, I'm going to have some fun and dice with them, but I'm not trying to block them. Yeah, that makes sense. One other thing I noticed that was highlighted for this year was um, B Squared doing driver orientation sessions every yeah, weekend. So I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about this. How did, how did it come about and what's, uh, what can we expect from this session this year? Uh, that essentially snowballed at our VIR weekend. You know, we had uh, a lot of time outside of the car drinking beers and shooting the shit. But it, uh, yeah, there you go again with the beer talk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so uh, it, uh, yeah, it snowballed pretty naturally, I'd say. And uh, and here he is. He's gonna, you know, we we all know that he's spent a few years carving himself a hell of a name in in our motorsports community as being one hell of a coach. So it seemed like a perfect fit to have him as the guy making sure the newbies coming into our series are fit to be in the car. Yeah, it seems like um, even for a lot of teams now, um, like the the aspect of what is considered a block or um, different techniques to sort of like fake out another driver. I, the intention with doing some sort of like a new driver orientation is just to make it more comfortable for new drivers to understand what they expect. Um, part of like predictability and safe uh, etiquette during a wheel to wheel race is understanding what that guy in front of you is doing. So why is, why is the car in front of you, potentially taking an inside line are they being unpredictable like what does that mean and what how do you combat that how do you take an alternative line to sort of uh, attempt to undercut or maybe try on the outside um 
I want to introduce the new drivers coming in from, say, Time Attack, who've never really had to uh, experience wheel-to-wheel battle. And sometimes they don't even uh, mm-hmm. race on the simulator. It's That's fine. Uh, but at that point, if you've never encountered a door-to-door battle, I don't want folks to come in and not have an expectation of you know, understanding at least. So yeah, the, the intention with doing some sort of an orientation is just to make the playing field um, way more predictable. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. It's taken years for me to realize that uh, I automatically assume many things are common sense. So I would basically in the beginning assume if you're here to race, you must know about racing and you must not be too new to this. And then you get to some of the new drivers meetings and it's like, has, has everybody been in the car before? And you get a few people raising their hands going, not me. And it's like, are you serious? You're here at a race and you've never done this before. And it was like that with the F2000s too. We literally had people showing up going, oh, these cars are manual. We don't know how to drive stick shift. And it's like, oh God, now you're teaching people to drive manual in a F2000 race car. Um, and there have been... I've had people, actually, there was a guy who showed up to Shannonville that was supposed to race the ultra rate car, and he uh, rented a suit off me, because I also do that, and uh, grabs the suit, comes back 20 minutes later, puts it down, and goes, oh, the car's stick shift, and I don't know how to drive that, so I'm not racing this weekend, and he was a karting champion. You'd think mm. a karting champion would spend a few minutes to learn how to drive a manual car. Um, maybe not. I figured he would. But in any case, like it's amazing how often you come across folks that are already, you know, karting champions, whatever you name it, but they are seriously way less experienced than you would have assumed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can believe that now. Like if you if you're if you started racing very young with with cars, then shift to carts, and then once you get to an F series, like a modern open wheel car probably can also be you know, paddle shift and stuff like that. It's true that like you can go through your entire racing career and not have to, to touch, uh, you know, one of our relics that we like to, to race in. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's like one of the, one of the things that I, I do hope like never really changes about the series is that it is so accessible, right? Yeah. But then to to manage that, we do have this additional responsibility of making sure that we, offer the resources and the education ahead of time for people to to um to not only like obviously for their own safety uh, but also for for the rest of the the grid as well um and i do think this is something that in general grassroots motorsports kind of struggles with is i i wouldn't say like the physical safety part i think everyone pretty much has that locked down right like it's just like baseline like you need to run safe events like all the safeguards are in place but I do think this this concept of like psychological safety, you know, feeling confident and comfortable, feeling like you belong and that like you're not going to be a hindrance to other people, which pushes that, puts that extra pressure on you, right? To perform yeah. and do things that you're not comfortable with. Like that's where a lot of organizations have a lot of room to improve and, and having these kind of like new driver sessions and, and making sure that it's like a, a thing that's celebrated that like we're glad you're here. You know, we're so excited that a new team is here is so important to to get people to to show up and and get their feet wet in in these kind of events right yeah yeah we're we're definitely inviting to both those that have way too much experience but also those that have zero experience you know our 
our community, the guys like Carson Wyatt and stuff like that. Everybody's so welcoming that mm-hmm. as soon as you show up, yeah, you, you kind of feel like you're part of the crew. And to go back to what you're saying about like the nerves and stuff like that, it's like, yeah, like I, Joe Searson, for example, first couple of times she got into the car, she was extremely nervous. But now having been on the track with you guys a bunch of times, it's second nature to her. But, you know, the first event or two is always extremely nerve wracking for a newbie racer uh, to be wheel to wheel. Lapping is a different story. I mean, also nerve wracking. But once you get wheel to wheel, it's the pressure is really on. Um, and, uh, but yeah, we have, like I said, the Carson Wyatt's and stuff like that. We have such a good crew of folks and the Dunskys and Jason Patrick, you guys, it's, uh, the, the community runs itself in that sense. Like I basically mm-hmm. just put on the events, but we, the, the racers are the ones doing the hard work as far as getting the new guys comfortable and stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, you know, talk, talking about new rules going into the future, I have a few ideas to pitch. All right, I would just get your feedback. There's no on beers, so. okay. Yeah, no beers. I know, so that means it's not going to pass. But but one one thing that that was on my mind, uh, thinking about the sprint f- format, right? I think the sprint format is, is a ton of fun. You know, we get a few cars come out to do that. Um, and one way I was thinking of heightening the the experience for the sprint drivers but as well for the rest of the grid is that cars who are registered for the entire endurance event are also at the same time registered for the sprint and so in the first you know one hour or 40 minutes everyone's actually racing in the sprint race and it just so happens a lot of times you know drivers like to send out the hot shoe driver for the first stint anyway and if you have a car like ours that usually blows up about, you know, two or four hours into the race, we actually have something to compete for in the first hour. Now, granted, you know, I think maybe people would be a little bit more aggressive during that that first hour, but it yeah. could add uh, quite a bit of excitement to to the sprint race. Thoughts? That's not a bad idea. I need to think about that one a little bit, but it's not a bad idea. Essentially, the sprint class started because I had a a number of racers that say, I desperately want to come to your events, but I can't find a team. Like, I have the car, but I just can't find reliable additional drivers. Mm -hmm. So I essentially created the sprint class for that very reason, where it's like, you can show up with your car, you can drive as much as you want, essentially. Uh, well, here's this little competitive bit, but you can essentially drive it as long as you want. Um, and now guys like Sean Greeley are showing up and they don't feel like they're missing out on the weekend. They're still part of the show, even though they're only getting a couple hours on the track by the end of the weekend. Um, mm. And it's definitely worked. It's it's brought some uh, newer cars to the mix, you know, like uh, last place motorsports. They started in sprint and that was their way of kind of warming up to the endurance. Um so I feel like it was a good addition. I don't really want to do a whole lot with it that it'll start throwing more wrenches into the endurance because endurance is always going to be the thing I truly yep. care about. Um, yep. But your idea is certainly interesting. It would add another element. And there, I could see some teams saying, oh, that's cool. I want to shoot for the sprint. Or I don't want to put that extra wear and tear if we want to last the eight hours. So you're going to see some yeah. guys are still at the back and some guys are just going to take off. And I can see that actually maybe uh, starting this kind of thing in the pits a little bit with the guys that are taking off versus <laughs> the guys that aren't. 
you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but let me think about that one. Yeah. Patrick, what do you think about that? Oh man. I, I, I grin so hard cause I'm usually the, the first driver. We might switch it up this year, but like to, like what, what was the biggest grid we had this year? Chuck, probably like 42 or something. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, like, I think you're right there. Sure. That's nuts. For I think it was like a Calabogi. We incurred a penalty at first weekend of. Um, uh, I think we made contact and then we incurred a penalty where we started from the back, and I I snaked through the field and I'm like thinking like if all of these cars were part of the the same race, like I don't know, I I couldn't differentiate a sprint car from an endurance car because I'm not looking that deeply, but. For for me to have that sort of mentality and that environment, uh, definitely makes the driving experience way spicier. I, <laughs> I'm I'm a strong proponent of this, but I I could also see where a sprint driver, um, somebody who like you know gets ready for sprint, this is the some the thing that they want to compete in. Um, I can I can definitely see where you know they initially built their car and their their uh, crew and their team to do this one thing. And you get beat out by a competitor who um, originally wasn't even interested in racing with you. So uh, could it hurt people who want to join Sprint, maybe? Um, would it I, also I would think be... the opposite, though, right? You have, you have more cars to actually competing against. Right, yeah. Yeah. right. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> That's the bright side I see is suddenly it gets the yeah. sprint class a, a bigger grid. So the guys in yeah, sprint, like, oh, this you is can expensive. you can gloat more afterwards and say I beat forty cars. <laughs> in, a, in a sprint race just by myself, right? You but know, the, no also, crew, the right? kicker too is when you go into sprint class, you're also allowed slicks. And I don't technically I have a class sprint race. You know, so you could show up with a Corvette like yeah, Rusty yeah. Bond. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. But maybe you keep the 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 classing still, right? Like you still have your like GT one, GT two, GT three, and uh, in sprint, I didn't even care last dog. year to be honest. I just want yeah, go out there and we'll just, call just it. go. Everybody's a sprint. <laughs> it's, it's, that's yeah. just the way it was. But yeah, as more cars show up, I'll take it more and more seriously. But when only a handful of cars yeah. are showing up for the class, it's like just go have fun, guys. I'll give you all banners for what it, you know for all that matters. Yeah, yeah, no, very inclusive. The the other thing I wanted to to have a conversation on is a little bit more on on uh, I guess like the technical side of equipment. So one of the the things that you know once you get into endurance racing after like your first race, you realize how important your pit strategy and and the workflow is is right to to maximize your safely maximize your time available to get the driver comfortable and and you know do a quick check on the car and that is all behind refueling and being able to do that safely and and effectively and quickly right mm -hmm. um, and for our team a big unlock was when we went to the dry brake fuel system right like it just <clears throat> literally like it'll dump eight gallons in like 11 seconds right yeah um, and do it very safely too, because you're like you're not going to be spilling fuel while doing it as well. Obviously, there's a there's a cost component to it. It wasn't cheap to do it, but it was it, it made a lot of sense for us. Um, one thing that we started to realize was because the 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 jugs are like eight gallons. Of course, you want to top it up, and you just want to do like we still use like two jugs, right? They become extremely heavy and like backbreakingly heavy <laughs> compared yeah. to some some of the other fueling systems. And one thing I've noticed in some of the leagues in the States is 
uh, folks are using fueling towers. Yeah. I don't know if you, yeah. Bags. What's that? Those gravity fed bags. Exactly. Basically. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? Cause, cause what I'm thinking is, yeah, it's like the fuel line itself is crossing between the, uh, the, the hot and cold pit, but from like a safety perspective of like, there's like, you're not carrying any weight. It's still a dry break. You could even share the tower with the, t- the team next to you kind of thing. Um, is that something that you could see like in the spirit of both like safety and competition or does that feel like, uh, you know, that's like advanced equipment then? safety. Yeah. You know, the, cause the way I see it is you're in the pits for five minutes regardless. So it doesn't matter to me if you could dump eight gallons in your car in five seconds, you're still in the pits for five minutes. Right. Um, it's all about the safety. It really is. And I've even been approached by those systems and, and at the time I just said no, cause I don't want to have to put you in your own area way over there away. Cause yeah, I mean, the way I see it is maybe if you were like spaced out 20 feet from each pit and everybody stands mm-hmm. back those towers, maybe sure. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, there, there, it's been approached and shot down for now, but it's not, completely out of the question if they became more readily available and it might be a different story but it seems like only the guys with tons of money are asking about that so i just go yeah <laughs> we don't have tons of money we're, <laughs> we're just lazy yeah it's collecting dust oh my gosh i i don't have the spare time to to put in the time that's required honestly like if you don't practice in the sim don't show up to the races because you just be a pylon and that's me i'm a pylon in most races so yeah yeah um no i mean that's that's uh a fascinating conversation about the 2024 changes i'm very very excited to see how it all plays out i think that's really going to shake things up especially with the the new championship point system very excited to see how that goes yeah i yeah. think suddenly teams like granui competition are going to be doing a little bit better because those guys are just known mm-hmm. for getting a problem and what feels like minutes later they've got fixed and back on track yeah um, and i can say that about so many teams like you guys at shannonville with your rsx staying up all night doing that chain Rough. so many stories of guys just working all night and getting it done yeah yeah so where do we see the future of the series going what, what would you like to see you know if you were to kind of plan out the next five years What's the uh, what's the goal? Uh, no big changes, just more tracks and more cars. Really, you know, we've essentially had I want to say ten percent growth each year consistently. Um, so I'm hoping in five years we're in the fifties or more for car count at least. Um, but I'm just continuing to develop, like I said earlier, the racing series that I want to race in. That. I, I feel like is a combination that will keep people coming back. Yeah. It's worked so hey, far. And speaking of new, new tracks, how did Pittsburgh come about for the 2024? I've actually been chatting with them for a couple of years now. I just try to get my foot in the door. And then finally they said, here's a date. Um, and so I called Kathy right away and said, I got a date. What do you want to do? And she, basically said let's do it and we high-fived and booked it and we're gonna put it on together um yep. we'll probably run the u.s 
rule book for that just to try and keep things separate and simple, which is why I essentially called it a bonus round and it's not part of our championship. Yeah. Um, so it'll just be like a fun round where we get to go experience the USA and have some fun at a new track and stuff like that. Um, I'm really excited to try that track. I get really, really good reviews from folks that have been on like the Dunskis. They've been there and they're like, oh my God, mm. this track is so amazing. Um, so it's going to be a fun one. I'm excited about it. And it's kind of our first foray to see if uh, we should keep going back to the USA or if we should just stick to our area. You know, I don't think we're going to have much hope going to Quebec area because our only real choices is ICAR, which I don't think anybody wants to do for any longer than a sprint race. Mm. Um, Tremblant is, I think, out of the question, basically impossible forever. Um, unfortunately, I would love to do that track, but I just don't think it's going to happen unless somebody has a couple hundred grand they want to lend me mm. so I can, you know, grease somebody's palms. But um, yeah, other than that, it's just continuing to do exactly what we're doing and not change it too much, in my opinion. Yeah. Or at least let the natural progressions happen, but no, right. no big major changes. Yeah. Just let it develop organically. Yeah. Yeah. I feel I like see. it has over the last six years for sure. It's uh, between the rule book really finding its place in the last couple of years, it seemed really solid. There's never been like, you know, much protests or anything like that over any of the rules. And, uh, and you know, the group of racers we have, like I keep saying, and I, I sound like a broken record, but it really is the racers that we have and this whole camaraderie thing that you guys have basically built up that keeps the series what it is. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So to kind of wrap up the, uh, the interview portion of this conversation today, I'm want to kind of go over, you know, what advice would we give to those who are curious about the series and thinking about how to get involved. Right. So we're kind of just go around the horn here on what does it take to, to get a team together and, and join this event? What's the right, uh, you know, checklist, if you will, or progression to, to get to driving? It. My first check for myself or the way I kind of progressed is find a mentor. Uh, like when I mentioned that F2000 course and how Hans from the FOG racing team was the guy organizing, he basically kind of became my first mentor. And he taught me like the first couple of things he taught me was like your butt muscles are the only G meter you need. <laughs> and uh, the other one he taught me was it's more like ballet than football meaning you know you should be making your car do the perfect dance around the track as opposed to fighting it around the track uh so those kind of things really stuck with me which is why i try to be you know super smooth driver and stuff like that because when i go out driving to me it's like i'm just doing a dance and when cars go side by side it's like we're dancing together you know it's just it, that's the way I'm thinking about it when I'm out there racing. I'm not trying to muscle the car around. I'm just trying to have some fun with it and let suspension do its work properly, stuff like that. You know, don't push the car too hard. Um, and yeah, he had so many lessons for me. Uh, so basically find a mentor and go to the track, like go come to an event and find teams and hang out with them and watch them. So you're not just jumping in completely blind. Um, that's probably really all I can think of. It's just, it, it, it really boils down to your first mentor, even at, even at a lapping day, if you go and, uh, you know, check engine light comes on or something, you, if you're a newbie, you're like, oh, that's my day. I'm done. 
but if you're there with somebody seasoned, like, you know, or I can picture my BMW, for example, if I was standing there with Shane and my check engine light came on, he'd just go, ah, don't worry, but it's just emissions. Just keep driving. <laughs> and uh, you just need guys like that to keep you in your place, not let you get too discouraged in the beginning. Um, uh, I would even suggest renting a seat, uh, maybe even a few times before you actually build a car, because you might find a team where it's like, Hey, they already got their shit together and I get along with them really well. Can I just join this team personally or uh, permanently? I mean, uh, and now you've just avoided the whole build process. Um, but in the meantime, by renting a few seats, you're really getting an idea of how things work before you actually get into the build process. So you don't overthink the things that you don't need to overthink. Um, what else? Also, if you're going to build, if you're going to start right from the build process, I'm a big uh, proponent to leave everything stock mm -hmm. and get at least a weekend or two under your belt and know your strengths and weaknesses of that car and your drivers before you start making modifications. Because we all know that the more horsepower you add, the more you lessen your chances of actually finishing the race. And it goes that way with a lot of things. You might think you're upgrading your suspension, but because you changed something, this failed, and now you're out of the race anyways. Uh, so many things can happen. So leave your car stock, figure it out, find a mentor. Those are extremely important things. Uh, volunteering for the series. I've had mm -hmm. so many racers that have come and volunteered and at the end of the weekend said, holy crap, I should have did this a long time ago because I feel like I've learned a lot. And now the way the series operates, I understand it completely. Um, so there's all sorts of ways that you can really get into it before you bite the bullet and build the car. It might cost you a few grand if you're renting a seat. It might be free if you're volunteering, but there's many ways to do it. Nice. Patrick, anything to add from your perspective and experience on how to get started? Um, I, a piece of advice that I was given, and although this might not totally be true, is sort of race where your budget is the biggest. So if you're, you know, looking at Lucky Dog versus doing some other form of like sprint racing, I don't know, how far will your entry fee and like replacing consumables and risk of damage, how far will all of that go? And you might come to realize that like if you you know plan and budget like ahead of time, uh, it could actually be affordable because what the biggest barrier I think to even entering uh, racing as a hobby completely is just the the financial aspect. Um, I think a lot of teams definitely starting off with the build um, spend too much on the build mm -hmm. and then when when things fail and it's hard to replace. Um, you can't just go to a dealer to replace that part. You're, you're you're trying to source something that was already a rare part to begin with, and that might not be the best thing for endurance racing. Um, a lesson that I think the R Club team uh, had to learn sort of the hard way was their car was sort of built uh, almost too rigid. If, if I recall correctly, they had some sort of um, like solid mount. And mm. I think racers often over-romanticize uh, you know, like hard, stiff, like feedback, all of these different elements. Um, but um, what they ended up doing was replacing that you know, solid mount component with something with a little bit of compliance. Um, and I, I, this is more agreeing to what Chuck mentioned about keeping things stock. Uh, even on our uh, Numi race car, we don't have a lot of 
Um, I, I don't think we have any uh, non-stock bushings. Um, mm. And you'd think like, okay, I, this is like a race car. I want to feel more, put something like, uh, like a polyurethane bushing in there. And oftentimes the OEMs, especially on modern day cars, they've, they've over-engineered the car for longevity. And especially in the, the space of Lucky Dog, it's all about longevity and nowadays putting down as many laps as possible. So you really don't want to be limited by um, the complexity of your builds, um, the reliability issues that come with all these upgrades, and also spending money to upgrade the car leaves less room for you to spend on more important things, such as uh, what made sense for your team, Jason, which was like the dry brake, which is like not a, a cheap system, but it could really come through in cases where you want to get another repair done within that five minute window. Or as for our we, team- We needed that time for other right. repairs let me tell you <laughs> <laughs> that's that's sort of why i figured you guys added the dry rig yeah. um we had to but... add oil you know all that good stuff <laughs> for for our team we like... actually give you a couple examples to go to what you're yeah. saying patrick yeah. is um uh tyler from dot for example loves that pickup truck but practically doesn't want to race it anymore because he's like the truck is so custom that every time something breaks i have to build it from scratch again mm. um, right so he's he loves that truck, but he's a little bit fed up with it. And also Neo Motorsports, he he tells me that anytime uh, a team comes and orders suspension, if he knows it's for endurance, he's always using the soft rubber bushings and stuff in the builds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's yeah. there's definitely some truth to all of that. Mm-hmm. I I agree wholeheartedly with with everything you guys have said, and I think the only thing I would would add is you know on the topic of of mentorship. Because everyone is so open, I think a good first step is to just to reach out to one of the teams in the series. And, you know, if you don't know any teams, then I am volunteering Team New Me and then my team, Team Part Out. Just reach out to us, find us on Instagram, message us any question you have. Uh, we'll be happy to answer. Because it's just one of those things where it's like there's there's so much that you do need to to get familiar with and no exact entry point so just just kind of ask away uh, and just feel comfortable you can uh you can grid beside us you can be in the paddock and the pit beside us i think that's really important you know sharing tools and uh getting advice and having an extra set of hands if you have a light crew like that always happens right like how many times have we had asked team Numi to hop over with us when we're serving in the car and we're trying to stagger when the cars are coming in uh, yeah. i think that's really big um you know some of the the practical things I, with endurance racing, I'm always kind of reminded of school projects in a sense where inevitably there's going to be one person in your team that's going to be doing a little bit more than others. It's usually the person who's most mechanically inclined. And if you're that person, I think that's it's always good to just have that. You should just know that going into the beginning that it's good to have everyone have a role. Like maybe one person's the team manager who manages the finances and does all the team registrations and make sure you guys, you know, are early bird on everything. Uh, you know, you're probably going to have a team mechanic and maybe you have one person that also deals with like uh, ordering parts and, and sourcing things and um, fuel jugs, safety equipment, blah, 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 talking with sponsors and whatnot, right? So some sort of like split of roles is really nice. Who's the team? Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, and I think beyond that, like getting finances in order, of course, like all of us have mentioned it, like 
something important to think about, like what your budget is at the beginning, yeah. account for things that are uh, going to be breaking. Um, and I think it's it's good to have a discussion around how do you want to think about if, you know, in, in the off chance that the, the car is damaged, how, how will you think about uh, repairing the vehicle, right? So give you an example, like the way that our team does it. I'm not saying that this is the the best solution, nor is it something that I would like just blanket recommend to any team. But what we do is basically we're like self-insuring the vehicle and that whoever decides to show up on a weekend, if you agree to be in the car with the rest of that the the team that's there that weekend, everyone's liable for an equal share of the vehicle in replacing it, no matter if you were the, the driver involved in the incident or not. Because I think what that also forces is you need to have a very high opinion of people that you're sharing that car with for that mm-hmm. weekend, right? So like if you were to invite someone to share a seat with you, you're, you're basically on the hook for their behavior and, and kind of vetting that, you know, this is someone that I would put my money down on the line to to kind of sponsor to bring it to the team, right? And, and that's like worked out pretty well for us. I, I still remember like when I, when I binned our Honda Fit at GP all those years ago, you know, I felt really bad and I was very adamant to the team. It's like, oh, you know, let me find a replacement chassis for the team at least, right? And, and pay for that. And their their resounding position was like, no, no, don't do that because we don't want to set that precedent because it could have happened to any of us. Um, and, you know, this is what we agreed on that we would kind of split the the cost. And, and that's how we, we it's like the the background system, if you will, to kind of make sure that this is this is the group that we want to keep racing with right and it goes yeah. beyond just one car one season that's a smart way to do it. yeah so to kind of wrap things up um we do have a q and a section where we we ask our listeners to kind of write questions um based off of previous episodes that we've done and and so if you're listening on this and you want to participate in the q and a all you have to do is find our latest video on youtube and just drop in questions in the comment section, and then we'll read them out and have a discussion uh, to to kind of answer those questions with our guests. And so I'm going to go back to some of the questions that we have here. And Patrick, this is actually from our very first episode from our friend Gibby's Garage. And, and this is kind of in relation to talking about the Tim Hortons meets, right? So the question is, Everyone has those stance plus Tim Hortons parking lot car enthusiast friends who say they will eventually laugh or autocross their car, but never do for years. What is the reason for them never making the jump? Is it fear, cost, too intimidating, lack of interest? All the track friends I've met, I've met at the track. It seems like there's an invisible barrier to entry and I can't understand why. Hmm. Interesting. That sounds like more like a Patrick question. Actually, on that note, while he's answering, I'm going to run to the bathroom super quickly. <laughs> sure. Invisible barrier to, and uh, an invisible barrier to track entry, I think, is broken by people who blend through both communities. Um, so mm. the I think the most prime example is actually Nick Maitland from uh, my team, and where in between going to track events he'd also go to different car meets and meet people so um he's sort of like uh i don't know if the correct term is evangelist or something um but to talk about what it takes to go racing simplifying that um, 
simplifying the experience into this is actually all of what you need. You don't actually need to do all of this to your car to have a great time. Here's a series that actually promotes Mm -hmm. um, driving for the sake of driving, not modifying the car. Then it becomes a little bit more approachable that you can essentially drive whatever you want. And I think uh, even uh, one of our uh, teammates on Numi, uh, Manitha, he was sort of like uh, a con- like a, a converted person who came from like meeting Nick at a car meet to now crewing uh, with us at Numi. So it's really transformative, I think, to have somebody in between make the time and the effort to introduce our sport to people who otherwise only knew cars as something um, that you can do to modify and show it up at a parking lot. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I think the way that I would describe it is the activation energy, if you will, that's required to get someone to go from just being a, a enthusiast, right? Who, who enjoys building cars and whatnot to go to the track, which, you know, th- those are two distinct populations, right? You can be one or the other, but if they, if they, talk that game of wanting to go to the track. Uh, I think we do have to recognize that there's there's a, a pretty big psychological barrier in that. Like you're always thinking about the cost. Maybe you can't really afford to have an incident or have something happen to the car. Uh, so there there is that bit of like a, a, a barrier to, to entry in that sense. But I think, again, like alluding to the, the concept of like psychological safety in racing, I, I do think there's a lot of that, right? Where people are always feeling like I'm going to be judged for putting down a really bad lap time on my first time out. I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know what the, the house rules are or something like that. So I think, you know, if you if you have friends who are kind of like that and you're, you're willing to invest in their experience, I think the biggest thing is just to invite them out to remove a lot of that barrier by just having them be a passenger in your car or maybe instruct them in a few, you know, alligator style lapping things, right? For them to have that experience without any of the risk, that's probably like the biggest gift we can give those those friends of ours to to try and get them uh, the opportunity to experience it for themselves. Yeah, I agree. You know, the in- intimidation factor is the biggest thing from going from, you know, car show to car track. Uh, which is going back to the mentor thing that I was talking about, you know, if you have a really good mm-hmm. mentor, you know, like we, we love being at the track. It's like second nature to us now. So if we were chatting with the person who has anxiety about it, we could certainly probably talk them into it. And let's face it, almost everybody on their mother these days has anxiety. Um, so yeah, there's, so, I'm, I'm sure there's so many people out there that want to get to the track so badly, but a, the idea of what if I make a mistake on my first day and B, what if I blow the motor? There's a, there's a real um, mental thing about that, being able to get in a car and say, I might blow up this motor and I might have to pay for it, but that's okay. You yeah. need to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, and that also goes, by, goes back to don't build your car too expensive, what Patrick was saying, and you know keep things stock because now it's cheap to replace. That's why I love my Miata. You know, Miatas and Hondas, super cheap to fix. It's great. Uh, yep. As bad as I want a Porsche 944, I also don't <laughs> want the uh, repair bill that the Dunskis and the going racing guys get every time something on that car goes. I'd rather pay pennies on the dollar for Mazda and Honda parts. Yep. Um, yep. So there's something to be said for that, for sure. It, it is definitely a mental barrier that you just have to get past of 
who cares if you make a mistake? Even the seasoned vet- veterans do. How many times have we seen guys that we know uh, with tons of experience still spinning out there? Uh, the John Dunsky thing uh, against Numi when when Dunsky was winning and then he spun and uh, beached himself on the uh, turtles and then you guys passed him. How much racing experience does he have? And he made one little mistake and shit happens, right? Um, yeah. It's going to happen. You just got to be willing to live with it and laugh it off and just think about all the other great times you had instead of that one little mistake you made. Yeah. So we got what, two more questions. I, I really like this next one. Um, have any of you ever had a scary off or crash where the damage and risk was significant? If yes, how did you mentally prepare yourself to get back into the driver's seat and regain your confidence? Asking for a friend. (laughs) Big crash, no. Uh, I've had very close calls. Uh, Like that Mustang thing I mentioned where I rotated counterclockwise in the rain uh, going into turn five and just barely kissed the wall. Like I could hear the mirror scraping along the, the rails basically. And when I pulled into the pits, I, I told the guy, I was like, I just hit the wall. Let's check it out. And he ran and looked on the other side of the car and he goes, what do you mean that you hit the wall? I, I see absolutely nothing. I went, okay, great. So, so we're, we're all set. That's, that's one big down. But, uh, that was probably the closest thing I've had offs, but I've never had a, a wreck. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I hope I never do. That's all. That's a big proponent why I try to drive uh, smooth. And, you know, if I'm driving somebody else's car, especially like that GR86, yeah, I'm trying to push it. So I want to keep everybody in the race, but I'm also driving very smooth and careful because I don't want to buy that car today. Yep. Um, Yeah. That's about all I got for that one, really. Pat? I think uh, you, you get a leg injury and you don't go back to running right away right you don't go back to skiing Mm. right away you go through physio it's similar with racing where you have uh what you can almost call like a mental injury you have to go through the steps to regain that confidence and most of the time it's just seat time um i I did give a little bit of a story last time with when i had a really bad off at shannonville um car like spun 360 and it took me like probably a year and a half of seat time at Shannonville again to just go through that fast uh, turn 11 and really regain my confidence there. So yeah, go through go through your, your uh, physiotherapy or in this case, our seat time therapy for sure. Yeah. I can actually yeah. give another example on that one is uh, years ago, I think this is actually still the chump car days. Uh, you guys probably remember this team, uh, Wheelhouse Racing, they show up with the Maxima. Um, well, years ago, they've always been racing a Maxima. They've just gone through a few different ones. And years ago at Calabogie, one of the drivers had a bad incident and just balled the car. Like when you looked at the picture of the car afterwards, it was crumpled right into the uh, cabin, basically. Trunk and front were just crushed. Um, and they rebuilt the car and they came back a little while later and the car was on track. And I remember being race control and uh, and I had somebody send up the team captain for that team because the car is going so slow on track that I called him in. I was like, dude, what's going on? Is there a problem with your car? Do you want me to black flag you in or meatball or whatever? And he goes, oh, no, the car's fine. It's just the driver that was in the bad incident. He doesn't want to go fast mm-hmm. anymore. And it took him forever to get past that barrier and go fast in that car again. He was basically a moving pylon for the first little while. Yeah, it takes time. And 
you know, I think that's the, you don't want to rush things, right? To get back into the seat and to try to push again. And I, it, it is a matter of, of the psyche though. So when it comes to like these strategies, what works for one person may not work for another person. Like we're, we're kind of saying like the whole, you know, slowly build up your confidence. And for me, that's definitely the, the case where I need to slowly build that. Maybe some people like they know they have it in them and then they just need that little bit of push in, in a safe, uh, controlled environment to remember against, oh yeah, like I got this, right? Like that was just a, a freak accent kind of thing. Um, and I guess, so between the three of us, like I'm, I'm the only one that, that had a major wreck, uh, in my, in my racing so far at GP. And ironically, you know, that is the one that really didn't leave anything behind in my driving mentality because, and here's the main thing, I knew what happened and why it happened and what mistakes were made, right? And so getting out of the car was just like, okay, like I know what not to do again and, and it's fine. And it's, it's um, plus like, again, we talked about psychological safety a lot uh, in this conversation already. And my teammates were like super supported. They didn't really bat an eye at what happened and, you know, we rebuilt from there. So there were no lasting bad memories, just, you know, a little bit of a sore neck for a couple of days. That was it. Uh, but I did have one incident, which at the end of the day, it, vented, uh, it, it ended as, as a nothing burger and that the car was fine. So this was TMP final corner. I had a double tank slapper on the final corner with my, with my FRS. It was very close to the wall. And that I still have a bit of a mental block on doing that corner fast because to this day, I still don't know exactly in the moment what happened. Now having more experience, I can probably guess at what happened. You know, I probably like squeezed on a throttle a little bit too hard, a little bit too soon over a bump or something like that. The rear kicked out. But for a long time, just like, I'm afraid of this corner because I don't know when the rear might kick out and, uh, and under what circumstances. And every single time I go there now, especially in a rear wheel drive car, I kind of build up to that moment. And what has worked for me in getting past that, and I don't think I'm like fully past it because it's always in the back of your mind because it happened before, like you have to respect it. But for me in building up that confidence, I kind of wait for my own self internally to say, let's push harder, let's push harder. I'm waiting for that voice and that confidence where I'm comfortable. It's like, oh no, I can squeeze out a little bit more. And that usually happens in competition, actually, you know, doing like time attack has really helped in doing that because like it, it literally comes out of nowhere almost. And that like, there's a voice in the back of your head is like, come on, you got this, like push a little bit harder. Let's get that extra 10th. And I kind of just wait for that now. Like I don't, I don't try to will myself to say, let's go over the limit just so that we test whether, you know, you got this or not. I, I wait for that voice inside that's that to kind of urges me because usually when I'm, when, when I hear that voice, I'm in the flow state. My, my body feels very uh, attuned to the car. Uh, I'm reacting, you know, subconsciously and very quickly. Yeah. Um, and so I don't force the situation if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I refer to that as, uh, riding the knife said where you feel like you have the car just barely on the limits where, you know, one big mistake is not great, but, uh, but yeah, once once you get to the the state of riding the knife's edge, then it's all small calculated risks on top of that from there. And being an experienced yep. racer, you know how much you can calculate and how much you can risk from there. And it's all a risk, but again, calculated risk with experience. Yep. Um, and yeah, I, I I love when you hit that point where it's like I'm one with the car right now. And uh, it's part of the reason I love my Miata so much is I feel like that car just being such a basic car and 
classic sports car, you know, like it, it gets you to that point really quickly. And, and then you're just stuck there for two hours. For sure. All right. We got one last question and, and Chuck, we're going to introduce you a little bit to our time attack world that, that, that Patrick and I are so deep in. Mm-hmm. So this question is which platform or chassis do you feel is underrated in the Ontario time attack car, car classification database? Likewise, which do you feel is overrated? Also, which vehicle do you feel most people overlook, but has a lot of potential? BRZ86 bias removed. Hmm. How do the classes work in time attack? Brackets, I assume? It's it's like a point system. So every every car has a base point system, and you have to keep it within a certain point allocation based off of your so modifications. Basically, but in time yeah, attack. in time that attack. Sucks. I've lost interest already. <laughs> Patrick, I, I see I see you uh big thinking face going on right now. I feel like I don't know enough about all the platforms out there. Um I don't know. Like for for a car to class well in uh time attack nowadays, um I yeah. feel like it's very dependent on the the courses that 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 uh, run in that series. So for for something like for something like OTA, um, yeah, we've got a lot of tight courses where cars that are more nimble will usually have an advantage. Although the rule set does change uh, a little bit in scoring when they run at uh, the Grand Prix track, which is a little bit of a more power track. Uh, there there still is mm-hmm. a lot of advantage to. Uh, you know, a lot like having a car that's nimble can still do a decent lap time. So you need enough power. Um, in in any series, maybe and this is probably I'm trying to remove FRS bias, but I, I've seen it in other series where like a lot of the times having a car that turns well is like super beneficial. Um, so Elantra N nowadays, but I, I know they did get nerfed. That, yeah, that would have the base that would have been pretty go-to. high on those now. Yeah, yeah. But maybe we can rephrase the question a little bit for for Chuck. What's 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 underrated in 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 your world um, of endurance racing? Where do you think people entering the sport can really uh, benefit from a starting point? Hmm. I don't know. I'm, it depends on what route you want to take. I think the eighty six is actually the latest and greatest i feel like it's replacing the honda as far mm. as uh bang for your buck uh, everything's easier to work on except for the motor yeah yeah that's the lesson that we've like learned chassis for sure like the or the yeah. whole package really um just a really well done car um I, I'm obviously a huge fan of Miatas and also because similar to the 86, they're so customizable, you know, parts are, there's tons of them and you can make a stock Miata that's going to be in GT3 class or with a few thousand dollars, you can make it a GT1 car. Um, so it's a very flexible platform and cheap. Um, you know, Hondas, you stick a K24 or something in any Honda and you're going to go fast. Or K20. Um, it, it, yeah, I'd say it's more of a budget thing. Like if you're looking for bang for your buck, 86, Miata, and uh, Honda are the way to go. But 
if you got some dough, you're probably going to want a Porsche 944 or similar. Because um, let's face it, that's such an amazing platform. Even 30 years later, it's still an amazing platform that's keeping up with the... Is it, is, would you say it's keeping up with or beating the GR86 as right now? In maybe like raw lap time, uh, a turbo car or I, I believe um, Mantis was running yeah. some sort of like a three liter from the next variant up. Um, I believe so. Like, they were. I think they're not doing that anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're great. Um, I think they're overrated for today's standards of endurance racing because it's virtually impossible to replace components on those cars. And maybe the yeah. 86 platform will become that at some point where all the 86 guys have, you know, destroyed their motors just like I have this past season on my own <laughs> personal car. Um, but maybe we'll all end up doing what Jason's done and like started the uh K swap. K swap. Yeah. Going going into yeah. that. K swap and an eighty six. Yeah. I think it's gonna be a long path for that swap to get to eight hour reliability. Mostly from vibration. Right? Again, it's all the same stuff. We talked about bushings and being compliant. That's literally the only thing that's holding back the swap from doing eight hours. Um, but then that opens up a, a bunch of rear-wheel drive opportunities, right? So like E30 BMWs, you can you can slap a K swap in there, there's kits mm -hmm. for it. But yeah, I think 86K swap is going to be very potent once you get the reliability fit. Because um, like right now with FA20 selling for like five grand used, that's that's a tough pill to swallow for, for a motor that does not make very much jam. Yeah. Um, for sure. On um, Just going back real quick on to the, the original question on, on the OTA side of things. I will name two specific cars that I think will be really interesting. Uh, and again, like with all of these, it's like it's really the base classification where you think that they're a little bit underrated because once you get into mods, right, everything's kind of flattened. Um, I had a feeling this year coming in with the GTI that the the base pips were pretty, uh, pretty good, right? And I think it did pretty well in the TA class. Soft suspension really was the only limiting factor. But I feel like the car that won up this even more in the same vein of like turbo T liter dual clutch transmission potentially, uh, or even in the manual would probably be an Audi TT, an early generation Audi TT. I have a feeling that the base classification is going to be very similar to a GTI, but it's going to have, you know, potentially a lighter chassis and um, a little bit more dialed, uh, you know, suspension wise, uh, suspension potential to, to do really well. The other car I will point out is the Mazda RX-8 base pit still puts it in TA class. Like that to me feels like uh, a great arbitrage opportunity. Like you think about like a like RX-8 chassis, you should, in my mind, it feels comparable to an 86 chassis. And they're very, very different in terms of classing. And I'm not too familiar with, with the rotary engine, but I also feel like that should produce more than at the, at least at the high at the top end than the FA20 as well. So that's okay. my thoughts there. Oh yeah. yeah. So we'll see what happens next year. <laughs> well, this was you would do an endurance racing the same TT that you're referring to, not the MTech TT. Uh 
TTs, I think in enduro, the only thing that that gives me a little bit of hesitation would be the turbo, right? And just managing heat over eight hours. Oh, is it the one point eight T in that one? Uh, which which car are, you, are we talking about? Audi TT. You talking about the the Jetta? No, the, the, the green... Audi. You said Audi there was TT. There was the one point eight version, and then the the early two thousand yeah, yeah, yeah. versions were one point eight. You're talking about the next generation after with the uh, EA triple eight two liter turbo. Uh, um, mm. But now I'm thinking there there was a team that ran uh, an Audi A3 with the same generation yeah. two liter at Lucky Dog, and I was surprised because I did not like that motor when I had it. Um, but for for a team Maybe to run, uh, yeah, they were uh, I think uh, Chuck were they from Quebec? Yeah, they, they ran the A3 hatchback, right? So yeah, that that actually could put um, an Audi TT in in a pretty unique spot in endurance racing if they can make the motor last because I, I i do believe those mm. chassis are great yeah mm. a lot of really, options a lot yeah. of options yeah i really miss my audi so i hope that we do see more audis in, in ldrc that's for sure it's such a dream to drive around in a in a dual clutch transmission <laughs> you don't have to worry about like over braking and I just focus on the driving, you know. That's that's fun. They nice. blow some AC too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Tons of fun. Learned a lot about, you know, what it takes to run this series, where it all came from, what the motivation behind it has all been. And I would say a goal for, for us having put on this episode would be, like, if another team were to listen to this, and decide a new team decide to join the series because of, of what we discussed here today uh that would be a huge success so if, if you do end up signing up for lucky dog this year in 2024 and and you listen to this be sure to mention it to chuck so that he knows he didn't waste his time talking to the two of us <laughs> schmucks over here <laughs> okay. i had fun i hope i didn't bore you guys too much no this was this was, I great. was actually really worried le uh, leading up to because i'm such a I don't like talking about myself. I'm a very boring guy. I'm usually the one interviewing other people and stuff. So it's no, you you're really great. So we it's it's on us to make you feel comfortable and to 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 pull out you know all the all the juicy bits. But uh, b before we sign off here, any uh, anything you want to say? Lasting words? Any shout outs? No, just big shout out to everybody that's been a part of it over the years and continues to be a part of it. You know, I, I see us all as one huge family and. Uh, you know, that's the way it's always going to be. We're, we're showing up to the weekend to have the time of our lives and then go back home to continue with our work. But uh, but we get four or five weekends a year of feeling like we're rock stars. So we just got to continue to do that and keep milking them. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us so early on a Saturday morning. And, uh, yeah, we'll catch you on the next one. Thank you, guys. Awesome. Thanks, right. Chuck. Take care. See you, dude. Take it easy, boys.